I love figs. I literally do love figs. Anything fig, that's not a joke. They are nature's candy. And the ones that Valley Fig Growers are growing in the San Joaquin Valley taste just like pure sunshine. They let their sun-dried figs fully ripen on the tree. Then they harvest them when they're at their peak flavor and sweetness. And best of all, Valley Fig Growers is a grower-owned fig cooperative. So that means when you buy their brands, Orchard Choice and Sunmade California Dry Figs, you're directly supporting the farmers who grow them. So you can snack on figs with easy conscience. Learn more and get some dry fig recipe inspirations at valleyfig.com. I love figs. Every restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Today, Omar Tate is stepping into the walk-in with me. Omar spent the last 10 years working in some of New York City and Philadelphia's best restaurants. In the fall of 2017, he put his knives down and left the restaurant industry. Omar spent a year reading, traveling, and connecting with people to learn more about his ancestors, his family history, and where they came from. All that soul-searching led Omar to his next venture. In 2018, he created Honeysuckle, a pop-up dinner series that explores the narrative of the Black existence through food. Omar started getting attention for his work with Honeysuckle. He was featured in the New York Times and was booked for speaking engagements. But when the pandemic hit, everything stopped. Omar packed his bags and went back home to Philly where he had to reinvent Honeysuckle into a takeout format. But this only scratches the surface of Omar's story. Let's step into the walk-in. Omar Tate. Hello. Philly's own. (laughs) One of my favorite people in the world. I'm so glad you decided to step into the walk-in with me. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And it's not cold in your walk-in, so I appreciate it. That's right. It's it's warm and fuzzy in this walk-in, at least for Mm -hmm. now. It could change. It could get pretty cold up in here. Um, I ain't skirt. (laughs) I ain't have a skirt, right? Um, So the last time we saw each other was in New Orleans. Yeah, Radical Exchange. Radical Exchange. Um, Shout out to Ashton Berry for Radical Exchange experience. I flew in a day early so that I could be a part of your pop-up because as life would have it, our schedules are never in sync. And when you were doing pop-ups, I was just, it never allowed me to go. So I made it my business Mm. to Mm -hmm. get to 
New Orleans for this dinner. And it was by far one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. It was food. It was art. Oh, that's amazing. It was amazing. Like, it was... I have heard about your pop-ups, but mm-hmm. this, to experience it with friends, you know, with our peers, lots of our peers were in the audience, and um, you had, like, an open kitchen. It was almost like uh, one of these New Orleans kind of chateaus. What was that space originally? From what I understand, was built in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to misspeak, but I think it had some, like— People who were enslaved were there. Mm. And I mean, it was just a really gorgeous, beautiful space. And it was like very unassuming from the outside. Very. With, with the, the pool in the center and, and the two, I guess, townhomes or whatever they were. Mm-hmm. It was called Race and Religious, which like the name itself was like, what? That's such a crazy name. Yeah. But it intersected on Race and Religious streets in New Orleans. It's such an interesting space. I believe heavily into the energy of spaces. And mm-hmm. I even more so believe in the ancestral occupation of a space. Mm-hmm. And For all sure. of those elements were present. Uh, we had just recently at that time lost Chef Leah Chase. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we were experiencing a universal shift that we didn't even know was about to happen. Like, little right, did we right, know right. COVID was about to pop off and things were going to change drastically, you know. And yeah, yeah, you could almost feel it. The energy was really, really mm-hmm. interesting, even that weekend. That was, I mean... All through the winter for me, I I felt like I was like doing things, taking steps to ground myself spiritually for this moment because um, I flew back to Brooklyn and then right into Charleston the day after I left to do a pit cooking event with BJ Dennis. And so I've been doing that for a couple of months and radical exchange happened and I exerted so much energy doing that. And it was just like, so there was so many different things happening. That was the first time we really got to sit down and and really have like a heart to heart talk. And it was so Mm -hmm. important and it was so good. And I think for me, that was definitely like the breaking ground moment to our budding friendship that we have been building for years over social media. And, you know, Omar, I really love Honeysuckle as a concept. And, you know, can you tell me a little bit about why it's called Honeysuckle? Tell me a little bit about your business thoughts and ideas behind Honeysuckle. Well, it's called Honeysuckle because the real house that I grew up in in Philly, there was a honeysuckle bush growing along the side of it. I feel like that I cook innocently, you know what I mean? With like a lack of fear of judgment unabashedly. And so... The last time I remember feeling like that is as a kid. And so remembering this bush and how we used to enjoy it and like eat it and stuff like that and smell it all the time was how the name Honeysuckle came about. But it started because I didn't see myself in the work that I was doing anymore from anyone, whether it was black chefs, white chefs, orange chefs, purple chefs. I didn't see myself on a plate or on a menu or in a restaurant space. And when I talk about black chefs, specifically um, at the time, and this is four years ago at this point, when I first started to think like this, was that um, I wasn't Southern. And in most cases, working in fine dining, if something was going to be displayed as fine and Black, it was coming from Southern roots. And then after that, it was like West Indian, and then even barely African. But it certainly wasn't just Black Americans, Black folks in the North, you know, I'm four generations removed from the South. So it wouldn't make any sense for me to be making 
chicken and waffles and stuff like that. Like, I, I didn't grow up on that. You know what I mean? I didn't grow up on Southern food. So I didn't know what I was looking for. And so I went to um, the Schomburg Center for African-American Research and just started reading stuff mm-hmm. that some of it had to do with food, some of it didn't. Some of it had to do with civil rights. Some of it was just about Black life. I ended up reading a lot of Zora Neale Hurston. I ended up reading Franz Fanon. I just was like reading Black, period. And I was like, I don't know what any of this is going to mean, but it's going to mean something. And so over the past three years, between me researching and traveling and introspection and talking to my family and creating stories and learning truths and tearing down truths that I thought were true, I started to create dynamic, unique dishes that were coming from a position of having nothing to do with Europe or colonialism or any of those things unless I really wanted them to. And if I did want them to, there was a reason why. Other than that, it was going to be about us and for us and through us in that way. That's dope. Omar, you cook a lot of amazing dishes in your pop-ups. The fish you did in uh, New Orleans was outstanding. Like, not one single bone was an issue. Like, people really (laughs) excavated through that good uh, protein. (laughs) Uh, But what have been some of your favorite menu items that you've created over the years? There's two dishes that really stand out to me. One one of them is called Remnants on a South Philly Stoop. And it's a dish... It's served on a slate to look like concrete, and it's a dish of devil crab salad, a buttered snow crab leg, charred candied lemon, sunflower seed puree, toasted sunflower seeds, and some like fried herbs. And um, so all of that is just kind of like thrown onto the slate. And there's a piece of the Philadelphia Tribune on this same slate being held down by the shell of the crab. Mm. And so when you see it, it, it looks like a bunch of stuff that had fallen onto the ground after people have been eating. And so, like, the the dish itself, for me, not only does it take me back home to Philly, um, but also talks about how my history with Charleston and how that's, like, a you know, on the sea, and people ate crab and Mm -hmm. and shrimp and mostly ate seafood. And if you're familiar with Philadelphia at all, there's a huge, huge seafood culture here. I didn't know that. I didn't know Philly had a huge seafood culture. I have no idea. You you just put me on. Oh, no. Crabs, fried fish, fried shrimp, Mm. all of that is a big deal here. Grits is still a big deal here. Wow. Yeah, and so, like, I know these things seem Southern, but I, I always call Philadelphia the most Southern Northern city. I don't disagree um, with that at all. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, like, I've never been to Chicago, but I can only imagine that Chicago might be the same way. Yes. You know? Um, and so that dish is an ode to that migration and that history. And then my family finding themselves, planting themselves here in South Philly. Mm-hmm. And then the other dish that sticks out kind of speaks to the whole, like, philosophical branding of Honeysuckle. It's a dish called Clarindi. Mm-hmm. And Clarindi was a stage play that was written by the poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar and composer um, William Cook. And the play itself had an entirely Black cast, and it was the first entirely Black cast to make it to Broadway. But to be in that play, all those cast members had to wear Blackface, Mm -hmm. right? And they came up with this play over a meal of raw beef and chopped peppers and onions and beer. And so when I read that in this book, I was like, wow, that sounds like a tartare. So I was like, to represent this whole idea, I'm going to turn it into a tartare. So I bought beef and pickled some bell peppers and onions and added some other things to it, like charred scallion or whatever. But I wanted to make it wear blackface. And so to do that, 
I dressed the tartare because you always dress tartare. Mm-hmm. I dressed it in squid ink and creme fraiche. Yes. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. But people have always asked me, well, how did you know that that was going to work? I'm like, because surf and turf works. Like people will eat that. That's right. And so it's literally a surf and turf. Um, but when I dress the beef, you can't see anything. It's entirely black. Mm. And so I explained it as like this metaphor of trying to like obfuscate the beauty that lies within the salad, just like they tried to hide the beauty of blackness on top of black skin. Like it's, it's just not possible. And so this play broke records. It became an international success in 1898 and made $1.5 million globally. Mm. And so I garnished this tartare with black rice wafers that are cracked to kind of represent this, this broken ceiling. And so that's another dish that people are always like, well, that's like, you know, an amazing concept. Yeah, that's deep. It sounds <laughs> good as hell, but it's, that's deep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, Omar, I know that you've probably had your fair share of walk-in experiences, mm-hmm. yes? For sure. Today will not be much different than that. <laughs> I will be requiring you to expose a little bit of yourself. And whether you're okay with that or not, you're already here, so it's too late. Uh, <laughs> and our first item on the agenda is our first segment, FIFO. You know what FIFO stands for? First in, first out. That's right. And so this is the part where we kind of talk about old Omar. Tell me who Omar was, who Omar was as a child or at whatever point in life you'd like to start. Mm -hmm. And then tell me what you have going on currently. FIFO. First in, first out. Well, I'm the oldest of four boys. And when I was younger, I mean, even now, I've always been a creative person, right? Mm-hmm. And multifaceted. So um, I used to draw when I was younger. I still draw now. I used to paint. I've always written. But as I got older, I kind of let those things go and kind of like dipped into the streets as like a lot of people do. Let all those things go. But I always worked. And so um, when I had the opportunity to become a cook after lying on a resume, I I took it because I was like, you know, mm-hmm. this is perfect. I wanted something that I could define myself around. Mm-hmm. And it was the perfect blend of like, I mean, you know, cooking, being a chef, it's not a corporate structure job. It's not, you know. Right. And so I was able to be more of myself in this position. So, um, you know, over the past, man, 14 years now at this point, between dishwashing, cooking, chefing, leading, following, I've landed here. Well, yeah, that's some good steps. Good ordered steps there, brother. Yeah, man. You know, I don't know. I love cooking. I love being a chef because it just it serves all of the the things that I feel I need to be like outlets. It's physical. Mm-hmm. It's creative. And now at this point, I get to be vocal. So, yeah, that's dope. I agree with that. I think one of the things that was most attractive to me about cooking was that it can really be singular. Like, even though it's a, a thing that you usually are doing for other people, mm-hmm. the actual act of it is very singular, like very internal, very cerebral. I love all those things about it. And I don't even know that I think you really have to be like a type A personality to do it. You don't. I really think <laughs> you kind of have, you don't, right? I really think you just, you kind of have to have some type of multifaceted about yourself mm-hmm. you know well, to be to be great at it for sure I, I think yeah um yeah but some people cook for cook's sake and that's cool too you know yeah yeah because people still got to eat for eating sake you right. know yeah exactly so your writing and your art were definitely a part of your formative years and obviously it has 
trickle down or over and into the way that you approach food. So you're here. We're in COVID right now. So everyone, you know, just for context for our listeners, all the restaurants are either closed or doing takeout services. The restaurant industry, food, beverage, and hospitality industry across the board is still grappling to find their balance and find some way to reach a new norm. And maybe to some degree, there are some of us working to figure out what that new structure can and will look like in the future. Mm -hmm. Those of us who are freelancing are probably doing a little bit more of it now, but much less so than before. And those of us like Omar who are doing pop-ups and you are not doing that at the moment. Right. Not in the way that you were doing it before. No, not like I was doing it before. Right. Okay. So what does it look like now for you? At first, um, I wasn't doing anything just because Mm -hmm. I didn't know Mm -hmm. what I was supposed to do. I questioned whether or not what I was doing was was even important, to be honest with you. When these kind of like catastrophes happen, you start to like place yourself in the middle of the the catastrophe, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, I had a lot of self-doubt about whether or not what I was doing was important. And honestly, I probably wouldn't have reshaped Honeysuckle into a takeout format if it wasn't at the behest of Ben Miller, mm-hmm. partner and owner at, at South Philly Barbacoa. We're, we're really good friends. And he was talking to me about what I was doing. I was helping him do something. And he was like, why don't you just do a takeout pop-up here and see what happens? And I was like, all right. I, I mean, I was reluctant to do that. Mm-hmm. And I was also reluctant to do things well before that. You know, um, when this thing first hit, people were like, you can do videos and cooking tutorials and things like that but like I've never been about that aspect of cooking you know Mm -hmm. and so for me to reform and reshape honeysuckle I had to figure out how it was still going to be personal how it was still going to be contextual Mm -hmm. how I would still be delivering a broader message and it could still be thoughtful and intentional so this is how I decided I was going to do it because it wasn't really about money Mm -hmm. for me It was about therapy at this point because I I missed sharing, you know, Mm -hmm. I missed serving. And so I was depressed. And what I was eating at home is what I served at my first dinner to kind of like talk to people about this space, Mm -hmm. you know. And I had been spending time mostly eating sardines on like toast with like olive oil and just like some salt. And I was eating greens and red peas for weeks, like weeks straight. Mm -hmm. I dropped all this weight. I mostly ate fish. And I barely ate and I wasn't drinking. And so that first set of meals reflected that. And I served them a la carte. And people responded to it really well. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I made everything myself. I sourced, like, you know, responsible seafood and all the things that I always do. Right. But I think that people really took to this, like, personal engagement with the food because we were all dealing with the same thing at the same time. Yeah. And part of what I do with Honeysuckle is that it's not just about Black food, it's about Black experiences and mental health is a big issue. Sure. And so it was still rooted in in Blackness in that in that way. And so um, that's kind of how it shaped and began to take on a new form and really start to visit customers in a different way, in a different space. The Volrack Company has been making industrial cooking gear for 145 years, and they brought that long history to the table when they decided to launch Nuku, their line of cookware and bakeware for home chefs. Here's Jean Horvath, the Vice President of Custom and Specialty Products. 
With Nuku, it really gives them the confidence to explore their passion and focus on the joy that drives them to the kitchen. Well, what we like to say is Nuku stands out by not standing in the way. Don't let subpar cookware stand in your way. Nuku Cookware and Bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit Nuku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for 35% savings off their stockpots. That's N-U-C-U.com, promo code KITCHEN. For me, the decision to go to culinary school was life-changing. It put me on track to achieve dreams I didn't even know I had. Like, for example, hosting a podcast about the culinary industry. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is in the business of dream making. Their programs prepare students for a variety of roles in the food world in the most achievable way. They've got campuses in Boulder and Austin, plus online programs that include industry externships. Check out escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. So let me just get some clarity. You are officially back in Philly. I am. Are you in the home that you grew up in? I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Um, my mom. Right. <laughs> my mom sold that home years ago okay. for a, a much longer. There's a much longer story behind why she sold that home, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> but you're back home, back and home. so as close to where you have grown up mm-hmm. as you've been in many years, for the most part, because you've been in you were in New York for a very long time. Yeah, eight years. I was in New York for eight years. But let's move back to like kind of cooking as a necessity, right? Mm-hmm. You grew up cooking for your brothers. Yep. Um, after school, kind of like given that latchkey moment, like most of us young Mm -hmm. black and brown kids were doing. And I love that you learned how to make chicken (laughs) (laughs) and like one chicken do three things so you could have a variety of meals. I think that definitely reminded me of how my grandmother used to treat our Thanksgiving turkey, right? She would, Mm -hmm. we'd obviously have turkey sliced for dinner I think by the time day three came she would be in the kitchen like pulling the remainders of the meat and the gristle off the carcass and into a pot and she'd make what we call turkey goulash Mm. imagine something like a soup with rice and some vegetables or something along those lines Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but just teaching me without and it was my favorite thing so like for her to teach it to me was definitely not wasn't feeling like she was trying to teach me how to make food last or stretch or respect mm-hmm. the protein's life that was sacrificed and using every single right, bit yeah, of it. Right. You know, I think it was all those lessons mm-hmm. without her really saying that. Right. And I got that same kind of warm feeling from reading about how your mother taught you how to make this chicken go a few different ways. Do you remember what your thoughts were when you were getting that cooking lesson as a kid? Yeah, 100 percent. My mom was like, you need to take care of your brother. <laughs> <laughs> Straight. I mean, I was made to be an adult at like a very young age. Mm-hmm. My mom, she had to go to work um, and we were home. My mom taught me like survival skills. She literally put it to me like that. She taught me how to wash mm-hmm. clothes. She taught me how to cook. She taught me how to make eggs and how to cook chicken. 
mm-hmm. green beans with potatoes and stock. And um, and those things would last us for days. And then uh, other than that, it was like sandwiches and like oodles and noodles and, sure. and things like that. So, yeah, the things that were going through my head were honestly like it wasn't joy. It was responsibility. It was a weight, mm-hmm. you know. I didn't find joy in cooking. I didn't want to be a chef or anything like that until I, until I was an adult. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I guess it's not unheard of, but I, I feel like you have... You're so good at it. Like, I can't imagine that you haven't always wanted to do it. That I can't even really process that. But that's very interesting to know that it was something that you came to later in life. But here you are at South Philly Barbacoa, cooking the meals for the people that you were only cooking for yourself to begin with. Mm-hmm. And your family. Yeah. You were in your hometown. And were you worried or concerned that you would have to work to be as received as you are in New York? Or, you know, did you feel like you had to reestablish yourself when you got home? Or, I mean, you're pretty famous. So (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine that no one was like wondering who the hell you are. I'm pretty sure that people knew what they were coming for because you've been selling out. You, You sell out before the people can get all the food. Yeah, that's true. But granted, I am only selling 15 mm-hmm. orders, you know? So, like, I don't think that that's hard. I'm saying that because there are other chefs who are from Philly who also do pop-ups at South Philly Barbacoa and sell way more units to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that I couldn't sell way more units. But again, like, it's not about the money. I honestly make more money now mm-hmm. doing these 15 orders at my pop-up than I was running around like a <laughs> in New York, hopping on trains, going to farmer's markets, trying to sell tickets and getting these people to come to, you know, these fancy locations and having to split and bust down my profit in the way that I was on labor, on food, on this, on that. And with all this, I stripped all the away. And now I make more money and I'm I'm more comfortable. But no, to to answer your initial question, it wasn't difficult for me to to reestablish myself here. Mm -hmm. And the thing about reestablishing myself was that I wanted to make sure that especially with this pandemic going on, especially with the notoriety that I have with the pop-up, that like I wasn't just coming home to Philly to say, look at me doing some Black stuff. Mm-hmm. And then no one that I'm representing through the work that I'm doing could enjoy it, which That's is something right. that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Philly's a, a completely different city than New York. You know, the poorest person spends $40 when they walk out their door in, in New York. And here in Philly, it's not like that. Everybody's blue collar. Mm-hmm. Everybody's poor. Everyone's fighting for the same resources. This is not a rich town. Yeah. You know? And so I have to be more intentional about the way that I'm presenting myself and who it's for. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I'm being honest with you, my pop-ups in New York were mad diverse, like mad Black people were coming. And never since I've come to Philly and I've been doing my takeout, it's mostly white folks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mostly white people coming to buy this food because they're the ones who read in the media about this kind of stuff. I can only speak to that because I grew up in it. I I grew up in a very Black neighborhood where, like, I was not aware of fine dining. Mm -hmm. And if I was, it was like a joke on TV. Oh, white people eat frog's legs and we don't eat that kind of So, like, why would I want to go to a fine dining restaurant? It wasn't for me. Right. You know? So even if people do see the stuff on the news or read about in the papers, Black folks that is in in this city, we don't really think it's for us. So outreach is important. And so I've been working on that. There's that responsibility word again, you know? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I was having a conversation with Chef Elizabeth Faulkner the other day, and she asked me what I thought about 
the effects or side effects of COVID on the culinary industry. And I feel like the pandemic really caused us to simplify our lives so much and realize Mm -hmm. that we could do just as much as what we're doing, if not maybe more, with less. Mm -hmm. And I told her, I actually hope that it has helped restaurateurs even realize that you don't really need this very posh restaurant that costs more than your profit margins to sell the food that you love. If you really love this craft, you will cook for whoever is eating. Even if people would normally come to your place to eat food on a small, fancy plate, they will also come to the side window of your restaurant and order your food. Mm -hmm. So I was just telling her, I hope that our overall takeaway is that this is really about the food and it's really about the people. Right, right. 100%. I mean, it's got to be about the people first. Yeah. When I got back home, I read this book called The Plague. In, in this book, it talks about a, a fictitious plague in a fictitious town in Europe mm-hmm. where pretty much the same things that are happening with COVID, with the government response and people's reactions and restaurants shutting down and things like that. None of it was important anymore. Mm-hmm. And after reading that book and seeing that reflected, it made me really think about the etymology of the word restaurant. Mm. And in Latin, the word restaurant starts with the word restore. It's uh, restare in Latin. And so to restore, when you think about what a restaurant does, it serves hungry people and restores them with energy. Mm-hmm. You know, we've lost the notion to me, the, the idea of like the the restorative force behind food and the, and the purpose and the reason to why we walk into a space. So with that in mind, I realized that what I was doing unintentionally was re- resorting back to that restorative piece, yeah. especially with that first set of dinners where I was like, I was literally feeding people food that was restoring me, mm-hmm. you know? Since we're talking about feeding the people, mm-hmm. it reminds me that your grandfather, James Jameson, was part of the Black Panther Party. He was. And I wanted to know how much of that legacy inspires how you move with food. Obviously, your food is activism for you. Anyone who knows anything about you, even just off reading the first sentences of anything that you've written and been and have published. But is this like a chicken or the egg sort of conversation, right? Like, were you activist first? <laughs> or? I was actually, like, not interested in being labeled as an activist. I still have my own battles with it because I think that um, I wasn't intentionally trying to be an activist. I wasn't doing the things that I thought activists do, right? Are any of us ever intentionally an activist or are we just like voicing that? Some, maybe some are, but I think for the most part, I think it just stems from a moment that you can't be quiet about because mm-hmm. some unjust happening and you got to check it, right. you know, like I, you just, I'm just not that mm-hmm. person to sit down and be quiet about it, you know? Right. I think it had to do with like false ideas around imposter syndrome and all that, like, if I'm not going to be out here with flags and mm-hmm. ripping down statues and this and that, I'm like, am I, am I really an activist? Yeah. You know, like that kind of thing. Or if I'm like, if I'm not organizing and like, whatever. Activism takes so many forms. And so I'm now more more comfortable with the notion that I am one. Mm-hmm. But I think there's got to be some sort of like 
spiritual genetic yes. transference, right? That that comes from my past. I never got to meet my grandfather. He mm-hmm. died when he was 43, like a year before I was born. And he was a Black Panther. He was a community organizer. All of my uncles were yeah. to some degree. Two of them were actually Black Panthers. One of them owns his own church. Two of them were in the military. So they were all very involved in, in the politics and in the community in South Philly. But, you know, we don't really have to talk about what happened with the 80s and right. Reagan. But these things disseminate. Black people die under this, this kind of stress, you know? So right. a lot of our generation was lost, either in death or in mind, mm-hmm. you know? My father's side of the family was really messed up on drugs. My dad was messed up on drugs. But he was also kind of involved, but drugs messed him up. So I really feel like I'm being spoken to. I really feel like I'm capturing, or I'm I'm not even, not not capturing, because that seems like, I don't know, this magical thing. I'm open. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I pray for it. I want it. I want to be able to receive this information and put it out through my voice, you know? And so that that's kind of how, that's what I ask for when I'm researching. That's what I'm asking for when I'm reading or talking or listening mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. I'm asking for that kind of guidance. I think a lot of us in our generation of cooking, Black and brown people, are really finding ourselves so much more confident in exploring our lineage and our heritage on a plate. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it just suddenly became really popular or if we just stopped caring <laughs> about doing what others are doing. You mm-hmm. know, I don't know. But I definitely know that a lot of our stories are the same. You know, we're inspired by the time we spent in the kitchen with our grandmothers or our aunts or our elders and the ritual of practices, right? Religious, holidays, etc. We mm-hmm. are all bringing those experiences to the forefront and finding that our stories are so similar. And sometimes I'll read a young chef's story and they're like, I grew up cooking in the kitchen with my grandmother. And for a second, I want to like roll my eyes. We all did. But then I'm like, you know what? That's actually so important to say because it is not to say that I'm great because I learned from my grandmother is really saying that they were so great in the way they cooked and the way that they taught us and they would never otherwise get the recognition for that if we don't say mm-hmm. this right. is where I got it from this is how I learned this, this is how I taught that or even this is where I get my activism from mm-hmm. Whether it was a direct impact or just the knowledge of it, you know, like ancestral knowledge is so important. Right. The wall slide. So, one of the most notorious moves that happens in the walk in is you go in there and you have a wall slide moment. You just have a whole complete total meltdown because something is falling apart. <laughs> And it sounds like you've been through so many things. It may be very hard to narrow this down, but tell me about a moment that really shifted you. Maybe it was COVID. I don't know. Maybe it was becoming a father. We haven't talked about that. You you became a father at a really young age. What was a wall slide moment for you that really stands out? When I first moved to New York, mm-hmm. I left my family back in Philly. Family at the time, my, my son's mother and Bashir. I don't think that she thought that I was really going to stay and we were going through our own issues personally and stuff. Um, But I was also, I think part of it was 
I was like really, really career focused. And I moved to New York to work mm-hmm. at Michelin Star Kitchens, right? And so I took a job at this place called Avoce, but the hours were like really, really crazy. They were like seven days, six day weeks, Good um, God. like 80 to 90 hour weeks. And so I took this job and I told his mother about it. And we had a spat and I was like, all right, whatever, I'll take another job. So I took a different job. Mm-hmm. They offered me mm-hmm. 650 a week, which was more money than I had ever made before in my life. And I was traveling back and forth in Philly. And I had two days off a week guaranteed and they were back to back. So that's why I took the job. So I took this job and I was making ramen. I learned a whole mm-hmm. lot about ramen in this week and a whole lot about what I don't want in life and for my career. No one took anything seriously to me. And I like, yeah. I've worked in like mad serious kitchens. And so like everybody thought <laughs> I was on one the whole time. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. like so serious. He's like picking through every single herb and like trying to clean up. And like, I lost it on somebody one day when I called my son just to check on him. And he was about four or five. And he was like, when are you coming home? And I'm like, I'm not coming home today but he took it as like i'm not coming mm. home he just like cried 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 and like at the top of his lungs and i was like well after i got off the phone with him if i am going to be doing this i got two mm-hmm. options right i'm either going to go back home so that he doesn't feel bad or i can pursue the thing that that i know mm-hmm. is right even though i know it's going to be difficult but if i'm going to pursue it it's not going to be there i didn't come to new york to live in new york i came to new york to work in really high-end kitchen so that i could develop and build my pedigree. And so I called Avoce back and I was like, yo, I've reconsidered. Can I come back? They're like, yeah, come back the next day. So I went to Philly that night Mm. and came right back the next morning, early as hell, because I knew when the the first porter showed up and I just grabbed my (laughs) knives and I left. (laughs) That's a great story. I love that. Okay. And I went, yeah, I went straight to Avoce from that. Wow. So yeah, that was um, a big watershed moment for me yeah I can imagine I can imagine we sacrifice so much in life in general I mean technically as a black person we make a sacrifice every time we walk out the door every day every single day and every day to Mm -hmm. have to hear your baby crying because he doesn't know if or when he'll see you again Mm -hmm. that same type of experience is just also our our day-to-day reality that was quite a wall slide I dig it I love to talk about the things that we have in common because they're so kind of random. Mm-hmm. We both have an, a special affinity for jazz, specifically John Coltrane. Oh, yeah. I'm wearing this shirt. How has jazz played a part in your life? When were you introduced to jazz? I was really young. My grandfather was a jazz head. Mm-hmm. My mother is still a jazz head. How did jazz come into your life? It's always been there. It's not the first music I remember. Yeah. I think, honestly, I think the first song that I really remember loving is Two Occasions by Babyface. I was like two. But yes. um, <laughs> I only think of mm-hmm. you on two, two occasions. occasions. What's that, Omar? <laughs> it's day, day and, and night. night. All right, I love it. Yes. <laughs> <all right. laughs> but yeah, that was that was the first song I re- really remember falling in love with. But mm-hmm. my mom would always listen to um, this station called WRTI, which is the Temple University College Radio Station Okay. here. And on Saturdays, um, they would play hard bop, bebop, jazz from the 1940s, hard, like, mm-hmm. off cuts and stuff like that. And I didn't like it. I couldn't stand it. Um, two reasons. One reason was because it was jazz. And it was, like, distorted. You know, I'm like, you know, you're used to, like, melodies and R&B and all that kind of stuff, right? 
Um, yeah. But also, it meant that we were cleaning up. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Because it was Saturday it was afternoon. Yeah, my mom. Yes. My mom would turn on the, her jazz show. I think it came on. Either came on at twelve or two. I think twelve, and it was a four-hour show, and we cleaned for four hours on Saturday while she listened to jazz, and it was torture. So um, <laughs> I didn't like it. But as I got older, and like not even much older either, like I started to get back into it when I was a teenager because I knew jazz was significant. It was something about it. Mm-hmm. It was our music. You know what I'm saying? It was our yeah. sound, and I was beginning to understand that, and so I wanted to know more about it. And um, and then I got even older, and reading history and learning more in-depthly just about, like, the nuance of Black existences. Like, jazz was considered, like, hip-hop is now, back then, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. And so, like, if that's the soundtrack, if that's the backdrop to our existence, like, I want to own that. I want to, like, live in that Sure. I also just love it. There's so much inspiration. There's so much philosophy around it. There's so many different ways you can take it. You know, if you go from like someone as simple, not simple, I don't want to call him simple, but he produced hits. Duke Ellington is Quincy Jones, is Barry Gordy, is Puff Daddy, is, yes. you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. but then you can even go abstract and say someone like Dizzy Gillespie. Dizzy Gillespie is Miles Davis, is John Coltrane. Is yes. Terrence Blanchard. Terrence Blanchard, yeah, that was what I was thinking of. But then yeah. we, when you go into hip hop, that now John Coltrane is Rakim. Rakim is Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick yes. Lamar is Tupac. Like, so the complexity is there and the simplicity is there. That's right. And so, like, the multitudes, all the things that jazz contains is all of the spirit that Black existence contains. Amen. That's right. On a sonic level. So mm-hmm. that's, that's so true. That's what it is. All right, Omar. This is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. It's called A Moment in the Walk-In. And this is where one of our listeners writes in to our guests to ask their advice or question. And they look to you for answers. They want to step into the walk-in with you. Are you ready for that? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> All right. I think you're ready. A moment in the walk-in. All right. Our letter today is from our listener, Marcus in Massachusetts. Marcus says, Hi, Omar. I'm writing to you because I'm a young man in the industry, the culinary industry, and I'm currently five years in, and I don't have a lot of social time. Can you give me some advice on how I could go about perhaps dating, or partnering while working in the industry. Do you recommend people in the industry to date each other, or would you recommend otherwise? (laughs) Wow, that was not the question that I was expecting at all. Marcus, (laughs) I am the wrong person to ask that question to. When I was five years in, I was online dating, and that worked and it didn't work because I was searching for people that weren't in the industry and it just didn't always align. You know, times mm-hmm. didn't always align. I- ideology didn't always align. And so that was difficult. I'm a firm believer in that, like, you manifest what you want. If you're, if it's about friendship, join groups. I've joined groups. I've joined a group of these people who, there's this place in Brooklyn called the Old Stone House where there was this um, old clay oven inside of it and people would just join on Sundays and just cook inside of the clay oven and talk 
if I was off on Sunday, I would go do that. When I was off, I would go to speaking seminars or whatever and engagement and stuff like that. I would take dates and stuff like that. And um, they enjoyed that. We have thoughtful conversation. We go to dinner. Yeah, that's what I would do. And now I'm engaged to someone who's who's in the industry. And so I think in the end, you sound like you're young. And in that, in that use, you're going to take your time. You're going to find your space and place. And right now you might just need to be stressed out about it. But eventually <laughs> you'll, you will find that person. You will find that person. Very true. You will find that person. Well, that's good advice, um, Marcus. I hope that you are actually focusing on your craft right now. Because <laughs> five years is not a lot of time. It's not a lot of time. Yeah. But I yeah. definitely can understand the need for partnership in life, especially when you're feeling very focused. Mm-hmm. And I think that Omar's suggestion of making good friends first is good advice. Thank you for that, Omar. Mm-hmm. And also, he just gave you a whole creative tip on how to date. Like, take your date to your speaking engagements. Well, Marcus, thank you for your question. I hope we were able to give you some insight. Omar, before we go, tell us what's next. If it's next week's menu, tell me what's getting mm-hmm. ready to happen with you when we close this conversation. Where are you going? What are you going to do? Actually, so I haven't been doing my pop-up for probably a month and a half now at this point because I've been focusing on a fundraising campaign where I'm selling bean pies for a hundred bucks a pop and an effort to raise $250,000 so I can buy a building for a honeysuckle brick and mortar that I'm not calling a restaurant. I'm calling a community center because I want to redefine and re-examine what the role of restaurants are with my space. And so the, the, the anchor of it would be a grocery store, mm-hmm. a meat market, a cafe library. And I would do, the supper club pop-up thing that I was doing on the weekends in the same space, mostly because I want to hit and engage with my customer base and my community at all of the socioeconomic tiers that I can hit them on. Sure. Where like the supper clubs and those dinners, I think in a city like Philly, the cost of $150 for dinner might seem a little prohibitive. Mm-hmm. I can scale up or I can scale down in this space. You know what I mean? I want to be able to meet everyone where they are yeah. Because I'm there too, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's the goal. And hopefully I'll raise this money, secure a place, and within two years we'll see Honeysuckle Philadelphia. Oh, my God. Just the thought of it just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> I know you'll make it happen. You are a master of manifestation. Everything that you've ever told me that you were going to do, you've done. Thank you. So I will be looking forward to seeing what happens in two years. In the meantime... I will be purchasing my bean pie to support the community space and just to be having that bean pie because it's worth $100 in my opinion. (laughs) And we will absolutely put in the show notes all the ways for people to purchase their fundraising bean pie and Mm -hmm. um, just to reach out and show you some love and support. Thank you so much for stepping into the walk-in with me. You made it so easy. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. This was fun. It was a good time. It's good to talk to you. So happy to have you in my space. And I love you. You know that. I love you so much. I love you, too. I'm very happy for you. This was fantastic. Yeah, thanks for coming to the walk-in. And uh, I'll see you soon. I'll be in Philly. To learn more about the Honeysuckle Community Center fundraiser, visit Omar's website, honeysucklephl.com. And please consider ordering a pie on his GoFundMe page. 
You can also follow Omar and his work on Instagram at honeysuckle underscore projects and at Coltrane215. We put a link to all that in the show notes. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, L. Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Hen Margolis. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Caroline Rickard, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strawin is our intern. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, Nuku, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.